to talk about today is thinking about providing a bit of context for human evolution, which in turn provides some context for trying to understand what it is that drives human um, dietary behaviour. And uh, I'll put in the obligatory few slides to try and link this to humans. We know everyone in this room better than I probably, but humans are enormously diverse. We inhabit every major biome of the earth, hugely different adaptations and different environments um, across the world. And of course, this is then linked to human subsistence behaviour, uh, some of which is adopted through choice. So people you know, have cultural preferences for the types of food they eat, and some of which is adopted through necessity. So if we think about how environments and ecologies impact what you are able to eat, for example, if we have a look at, for example, herders like the Avenki in very high latitude environments for a lot of the year there's very little plant food available so they're dependent on eating um, the products of animals are able to eat things like lichens that they can forage all year round so rather than directly subsisting off um, primary products so plants for example in the environment they exist off primary consumers. And so there are lots of different ways to be human and to eat. Um, and this is something that I'll talk about in the very end, but certainly something that we explored um, in this book. One of the things that has been really emphasised when we think about human evolution is the dependence on animals and meat eating. And Alan Turner in well, probably 25 years ago now, made some very compelling arguments for saying, well, the reason that humans were able to exploit very high latitude environments or much higher latitude environments in the tropics in which they evolved was because they could join the large carnivore guilds in northern Europe, for example, and exist off this ubiquitous resource, which wasn't tropical fruits, as well as tropical plants, which would be found um, in lower latitudes, but in fact animals. Now, this has been changed quite a lot, and I think there's a bit of a sway in human evolution now where we realise that plant foods, that animal foods have been overemphasised compared to plant foods. So if you think about the work that was done in the, the early isotope work that was done, for example, really emphasised, for example, Neanderthals as high-level consumers, you know, massive predators. In fact, if you have a look at other lines of evidence, for example, calculus, dental calculus where you get starch grains in that, it's quite obvious that men in the Antars didn't just survive on eating animals, they also ate very, very diverse plant foods. And you'd expect that given our primate heritage. So primates eat plants and they supplement with other things including meat. So something that I've been thinking about a lot um, recently, and you know, we started talking about this um, in the book with Stanley is the fact that high quality resources are a hallmark of human diet, not necessarily meat though. So turning resources into something that's very easily digestible. Uh, so cooking, for example, processing extra somatically. So using tools, you know, stripping out some of the fibre of these. And this of course has direct relevance to understanding obesity because but we are living in this obesogenic environment where we've taken processing to an ultra level. You know, we're stripping out lots of these things like dietary fibres. We're making packages really energy dense. 
And this is the end of a continuum, or part of a continuum that we started, we saw starting with some primates indeed, but in our human ancestors, the hominins, who were really starting to process foods to make them more digestible. And we see the products of this in adaptations in our gut, so our guts are a lot shorter than you see in chimpanzees, for example, and this is partly because of high-quality diets, but not necessarily because of an exclusive dependence on eating meat or even um, a dominance of meat eating in the diet. So humans exist on a number, they, we were able to eat from a number of different productivity levels, so we're really a collective feeders. We're probably the only true primates that are true omnivores. And there are certain adaptations that we've had that enables to do this, so the controlled use of fire enables us to cook things and turn things that would be quite indigestible for a standard ape into things that are more digestible. And it's possible that, so there's evidence from Wonderwork Cave about a million years ago, that it's possible there's controlled use of fire there, but definitely by about 500,000 years there was fire around that was being controlled and used to not only protect against predation and allow us to inhabit higher latitudes through bringing in light so we could talk and have activities after dark, but also to try and cook things. So one of the real messages that I'm keen on passing across to people is that we didn't have a single environment of evolutionary adaptiveness. There wasn't a single point which we could say, oh, humans have these ad adaptations. To diet, and this is where they evolved their particular subsistence strategies, because in fact, Pleistocene environments were very variable, they changed seasonally, they changed over time in response to the glaciations, um, and they were also different in terms of different places. So we have massive temporal variation and also massive spatial variation. And just on this slide here, this is some modelling, these are based on and biome three categories. This is old work now, about a decade old, that we did, just modelling biome three categories. And these are the types of changes that you got, so from the Pliocene into the Pleistocene, and this is the difference between interglacial periods and glacial periods. And so you can see, for example, that during interglacial periods, so when the ice retreated, um, there would be a lot more inhabitable environment in, for example, Europe than there was during glacial periods. And we've actually expanded this work quite a lot recently, and I'm not showing this slide, to look at um, more regional environments in Africa, for example. And habitats were quite variable and very patchy. And so hominins would have possibly changed their ranges to exploit different areas, and almost certainly they would have changed their diet. Once we got to Homo, I can imagine that we had this very flexible, eclectic diet that shifted not only seasonally, but also generationally and on much longer time periods as there were these big sweeps in and out of glacial and interglacial periods. So, where do monkeys come in? And they basically come in, when we're thinking about human evolution and the evolution of human dietary subsistence behaviour, because humans were not the only tropical primates to get out of Africa in the Pliocene and the Pleistocene. We have others. And um, if we have a look at the diversity and the, the geographic distributions of old world monkeys today, and old world monkeys are the ones that live in Africa, Asia, and previously in Europe, and those are in distinction to the new world monkeys, which we don't mention. Um, so, <laughs> and that's just uh, 
That's just I'm rude. Um, and we see this is the distribution today. It's a very tropical distribution. So sub-Saharan Africa, a little group here of macaca that live in North Africa that I'll talk about um, much more in a couple of minutes. And then this group in South and Southeast Asia that get up now to a latitude just below 40 degrees north. And these are the Japanese snow monkeys here. Now, if we go back... In geological time, a very short time ago, to the late Pleistocene, monkeys actually were found much further north into northern Europe here. So they had a much bigger distribution. And in fact, there are also specimens from around about here in Mongolia. So it wasn't that they were just inhabiting that part of Europe. They were inhabiting at least some parts um, of much higher latitude Asia in the Pleistocene as well. So the reason that this is interesting is because as primates are tropical animals and basically dependent on tropical food resources, most of them are very frugivorous and supplement with leaves and with insects and occasionally with meat and grasses, but generally they like being in relatively productive habitats. How do animals get out of these environments and manage to survive much further north where you not only have less productive environments, even in the Pleistocene when things were, there was a greater carbon con carbon constitution co con constitution in the environment, so things were generally warmer, but even then the environments were demonstrably less productive, but also we'd have big seasonal variations, including photoperiod variations. Now, I'm not going to talk about those today, but those are actually a significant constraint on primate behavioural ecology, because as a primate, it's not just enough to eat, you also need to interact with your fellow primates and there's a balancing act that you have to do between eating and interaction that enables you to survive. And once you get up into higher latitudes, if you think about what it's like in December, for example, so already, so I live about here, just south of 55 degrees north, and I'm going to work in the dark and coming home in the dark. If you think about that in the primate context, when you don't have any artificial light, um, at least as a non-human primate, that's tricky because you don't have enough time to keep your social groups together as well as forage. So there's all sorts of things, constraints, of going out of these tropical zones and going into more temperate regions. And when you think about this ecologically, there are a couple of models that you can think about. You can either be stenotopic, so really highly specialised, and exploit a ubiquitous resource. And this is something that we probably saw in Therapithecus, which was a very widespread fossil primate that's today only found in a very small part of Ethiopia, here, a bit of Ethiopia and a bit of Eritrea, but doesn't have a wide geographic distribution at all. But in the Pleistocene was found across a lot of sub-Saharan Africa, as well as North Africa, and then out into Europe, into Spain, for example, through the Middle East and also into India. And we think that that was able to go out and exploit those environments because it eats grass. And what you have here across in the, in the Pleistocene is something that Robin Demel called Savannah Stan, which is this band of grassland that stretches across this area into um, Southeast and East Asia. So Therapithecus managed to do that because it's specialised, and it's specialised in a ubiquitous resource. The other option that you have is to be eurotopic, so very flexible and very generalised. And this is the model that we see probably in the macaques, and this is what the data I'm going to show you uh, today, where if you can manage to move your diets flexibly, you can exploit environments 
probably more effectively when they're changing and changeable. And if this sounds familiar, it, it should be, because this is why we chose macaques to look at uh, for this work, because they provide a very good analogue for humans who are also neurotopic. So these are the European fossil primates that we have in the record. I've already mentioned Therapithecus here, and that's found um, in the early and middle Pleistocene. So these are the, <coughs> the dates um, from about 2 million years ago to about 0.5 million years ago. Earlier, we have, um, this is a type of colobine monkey, Mesopithecus, that was also quite generalised, and that was found through the Miocene into the Pliocene. We've got Dolichopithecus and Paradolichopithecus, which are both fairly baboon-like. So something that's coming out already from this is the primates that managed to get out of this you know, tropical forest belt in Africa often are the ones that are much more flexible and likely to vary their diets. They seem quite generalised in their adaptations, other than Therapithecus. And then we've got Macaca here, which is found in the late Miocene in Europe and goes all the way through to the late Pleistocene, with the, the last uh, finds of Macaca found um, about just before the last glacial maximum, about 20,000 years ago, places like Austria. So these hung around for an awful long time. And indeed, and this is work that I'm not going to show you either, we did some modelling, and macaca really should be in Europe. And so one of the reasons that they're probably not is, is because of hunting pressure from, from humans and Neanderthals. Um, it's likely that that tipped them over the edge, you know, forced into very small populations and, and then didn't survive beyond then. Uh, but there's no reason why macaques couldn't still be in Europe. So these are the Barbary macaques today. And the Barbary macaque is the macaque that's found in, in North Africa in modern times, but was also found into Europe um, from the Miocene through to the late Pleistocene. So they're found um, in very relict populations, and these are relict populations because they've really suffered from human pressure. They're particularly vulnerable to hunting dogs, for example, and they've been forced further and further up the mountains. And they now live in quite relatively marginal habitats, highly seasonal, seasonal. And there's some really interesting work that was done by Richard McFarland and Bino Miolo a few years ago that said that the animals that are most likely to survive are the ones that have really close social networks. So this, again, re-emphasises the importance of primate social behaviour and inhabiting marginal environments. Um, but these are Barbic Marimba cat fossil distributions. Don't look at this, I've got a mistake on this slide. This is, I meant to relabel that. This is Mesopithecus. I wanted to, to put that as a dot on here just to show you that, that Britain had primates um, from the Pliocene. Um, but these, this is the good macaca distribution from the Pliocene, and in the Miocene, it probably originated in Africa and then had this circum-Mediterranean uh, dispersal and in started to inhabit Europe from very early on. And Macaca was inhabiting Europe um, as the apes were retreating out of Europe and the um, other types of castorines were retreating out of Europe and being found in much more relic population in Africa. Macaca was then dispersing round, and there's another story about you know, competition between monkeys and apes here. Um, these apply Pleistocene dates, these are early Pleistocene, um, these are early to middle Pleistocene sites, these are middle Pleistocene sites here, and the reason that some of these 
category is a little bit vague is because many of the sites in Europe are not particularly well dated and like in the Rift Valley in Africa where you've got big time slices that you can really pin down quite accurately because of volcanic activity we don't have that as much in Europe so we have to use other dating methods some of which are quite vague um, but these are middle Pleistocene sites and you see there's quite an, a few sites in the south of England and up into Norfolk um, there should if you are looking at this taphonomically, um, you should really be finding them much further north because it's got some really big, uh, very good faunal assemblages, for example, in the Yorkshire Dales, and Macaca just doesn't seem to be there, and we think that's actually a good absence, so a real absence, related to the fact that they couldn't expand much further north because of this constraint over having enough time to socialise versus enough time to forage, and again, we've done some modelling on that, um, and we think that that's a reasonable assumption, bearing in mind there are things that are like macaca, similar size, so it's, that are exist in those caves, so it doesn't look like a preservational bias. Um, and then these are the late Pleistocene sites that I was mentioning earlier. So what we have during this time period, and this is this big line is basically the last appearance date of macaques in England. Um, just to try and situate that, so that's the middle Pleistocene there. Um, and these are the glacial shifts that you see. So big changes between glacial and interglacial periods, between cold stages and warm stages. And of course, you don't just immediately switch from cold to warm, you go through lots of intermediate environments. Um, and there are some places that are being touted as refugial populations. So Italy, for example, probably had macaques surviving there for pretty much the whole of their tenure during the Pleistocene because that would be a place that would be less affected by these big cycles between glacial and interglacial periods. Um, this is West Runton in Norfolk during an interglacial period. This is West Runton in Norfolk during a periglacial period. This is what it may have looked like. The ice sheet came down to about as far as Leicester um, during the full glaciation and then of course you would cycle back out of there um, and back into a nice relatively Mediterranean climate in the middle Pleistocene. So these monkeys were found throughout this whole succession so of course they wouldn't be just sitting around there all the time, populations would be dying out, populations would be surviving further south but then there would be successive waves of re-exploitation and, and redispersal into some of these areas at least some of the time that is that that's a very simplistic story because there are some periods where we don't find humans or macaques in England or indeed in Britain where we might expect them to and that's a bit of a mystery that people are looking into. So when we think about how these uh, populations manage to survive in these areas, obviously we, we think about diet as being a primary means to enable you to adapt to a particular environment. So what we wanted to do is we wanted to look at modern macaques as an analogue and also look at fossil macaques. And so these, uh, these are the questions that we have. So the modern macaques with a widespread distribution have varied diets. And this is because it's actually quite, we wanted to look at this because it's actually quite difficult to get really good data from hominins from this period, from higher latitudes, partly because there aren't that many existing, so relatively few sites where you actually get fossils. A lot of what we know is because through archaeological evidence, and it's very difficult to actually pick up signals about diet. So if we use macaques as an analogue for humans, we can say, well, 
thinking about an animal that's got a tropical heritage, do we see behavioural variation um, in geographically variable regions? Um, and is there a relationship between latitude and dietary variability? So do animals that live in higher latitudes have more variability because the resources are less secure? And then, as I said, we think about the fossils. So we, the method we used to look at this, and this is work done with the, the co-authors on this paper, Carolyn Chenery and Angela Lamb at um, the NERC Isotope Geoscience Lab in Keyworth, uh, Hannah O'Regan, who's now in archaeology at Nottingham, and Lorenzo Rook, who's a paleontologist from Italy at the, the University of Firenze. Um, we used a stable isotope analysis, and this is a technique you're probably very aware of, Julia Lee Thorpe is just down the road, and so I'm not going to go into any great detail, but for modern animals you can look at carbon isotope signatures and also nitrogen isotope signatures when you're thinking about diets. Um, so carbon isotope signatures, just a little um, revision of this, you can have a, a C3 signal, and that is browse, so fruits and leaves are C3. You can have a C4 signal, and this is tropical grasses, so whereas browse is non-tropical grasses, grasses and browse, you can have a C4 signal, which are these tropical grasses, and you can also have a CAM signal. Pineapple, apparently, is a CAM plant, um, but we generally ignore CAM because it's quite complicated to interpret, and generally primates don't exploit CAM in plants because they're things like succulents and things where found in deserts where you get big shifts between night and day temperatures for example and so they can change their photosynthetic pathway um, but the C4 grasses have been hanging around for a long time geologically speaking but really came into their own uh, in the late Miocene and into the Pliocene and Pleistocene where we got big expansions of C4 grasslands for example the Serengeti uh, in Africa, and also this savanna stan is dominated very much by C4 grasses. So this is something that really contextualises human evolution as well. And one thing about, about hominins that distinguishes them from modern apes is that hominins tend to use C4 resources much more than modern apes do. And so we were interested to see whether monkeys use C4 resources in similar ways, because that's one argument why hominins have managed to release themselves from this ancestral ape niche, is because they've managed to go out and exploit things that are not browse resources. They can do other things. Uh, and so we were interested to see if our monkeys were doing that. So we took Reese's macaques as a model. And the reason that we took Reese's macaques as a model is because they're incredibly widespread, um, found in, in relatively high latitude areas, so for example into the Himalayas, which are also high altitude areas and cold, um, down into tropical regions and also have a big um, east-west distribution found right through into China. Um, interestingly, the morphologists think that there are very few subspecies within macaques, whereas the geneticists think there are lots. So this is <laughs> something that's still up for grabs about whether this is a, a reasonably continuous distribution and all of those sorts of things, but for the purpose of that, it doesn't matter. Don't worry about subspecies. Um, what matters is these different places, these animals existing in different environments. And they're geographically widespread, so of course we expect to see big environmental differences. I've already mentioned um, their high, relatively high latitude and high altitude living. 
Um, and then these tropical forests, for example, in the downs. And we went, when we were doing this work, we went back to the reports from people observing on the ground. And one of the reasons that we didn't just use those reports is because people collect dietary data, observational data, in very different ways and they're not comparable. But if we're using the single chemical signature from using the same technique, then the diets, we can compare them much more easily and much more rigorously. Um, but we went, we used the um, observational data to contextualise our work. And indeed, there are big difference, differences reported. For example, there's a lot more um, use of of tropical fruits like tamarinds in the areas such as the downs here. And this, this comes out when we look at the um, dietary variation data. So here we have, so this might be a little bit blurry. I might have blown this up beyond what I can blow it up to, but well, I'll explain what we've got here anyway. So we looked at signatures in hair primarily, and that was partly because it's much easier to sample hair because you don't need to destructively sample it in quite the same way. Um, lots of pelts in museums where the hair is literally falling out, so you can, you can take a bit of hair without damaging the specimen too much. But we also wanted to look at hair because isotope signatures um, are related to the turnover of the tissue. So you know that your hair grows. Um, it grows quite quickly, it's the same in the cats, and so as you are what you eat, your, you know, the things that you take into your body are reflected in your hair, and this is obviously a much finer grain signal in hair than it is in bone or teeth, where teeth turn over, well they don't turn over at all, they're formed, um, and then they emerge and they don't turn over after that, but bone turns over on a period of years, whereas hair turns over on a period of months. So we're interested in looking at hair, because it may give us some signals seasonal signals and of course as you move further out of the tropics then temperature seasonality becomes much more significant. So we have hair on this um, x-axis here and the carbon signature of hair and then the nitrogen signature that came from hair on the y-axis and you can see that these fall out relatively nicely geographically. So we've got this group here on the quite C4 side of this. So all of these animals are eating C3 resources. We can tell this from this graph here, but in fact this group of animals from Uttar Pradesh, um, so further towards the Himalayas, are supplementing with C4. Um, and then these animals here from the more tropical regions are exclusively existing on C3. And you can see that from this axis here. You can also see in the tropical animals that there's a big difference in terms of nitrogen. And I'm going to unpack all of these results further in a moment. Um, if we look at the variability, so that's variation, if we look at variability, and this is a graph where our macaques are here, plotted against other values that we took from the literature from other primates, um, for example, certain chimpanzees here, for example, um, galagos, various other things, um, we've got some neotropical primates here, you can see that the variability on the C4 axis for the macaques is absolutely massive and this is a direct reflection of their geographic variability and the fact that they are existing on a number of different resources, much more so than these animals that even though they have, may have quite a big geographic distribution, exist in much generally less variable uh, environments. So let's have a look at these dietary patterns in more detail. So this is the C3 signature 
Um, and these, this is where we have, as I pointed out earlier, the distinction between animals that are supplemented with C4 and animals that are not. Um, and these are the sorts of things that we know from the literature these primates were eating. Um, C, C3 invite the classic things like tropical fruits and leaves, but also macaques being macaques, they're very good at living alongside humans, and they supplement their diet with crops, so they'll be eating a bit of rice, for example, and this is one reason why macaques are so generally successful, is because they can exist in anthropogenically modified habitats quite well. Um, and these are the C4. Now, some of this signal will come from eating maize or mealies because they do crop raid maize. But interestingly, we think that none of this signal comes from eating crop raiding maize because we went back, because these are sampled from the early 1900s and we went back to the agricultural data for, for this higher latitude um, Uttar Pradesh area um, and there are no agricultural records of maize production until much later on in that region. So we don't think that these animals are showing a C4 signal because they just happen to be crop raiding maize. We think they're showing a C4 signal because if you have a look at the behavioural data, in the periods of, of dry season, they are supplementing with these two C4 grasses Arundinella and Cynodon, and this is quite well documented in the observational literature. And this is something that we don't see in macaques from elsewhere, which is quite interesting and again links into this idea that macaques are a reasonably good model for hominins because they are exploiting what's found in their environment and using expanding their niche much more than apes would, for example. Then if we have a look at the nitrogen patterns, um, you can see that, in fact, this is, this is high supplementation with protein, so high insect supplementation, we generally interpret that as, and lower. And so it doesn't look like macaques are really supplementing, even if they're getting out into higher latitudes, that they're supplementing their basically plant-based diet with faunal resources. They seem not to be doing that, which itself is quite interesting. However, what we do see and these are the macaque nitrogen data shown in more detail, um, we do see the effects of nitrogen fixating plants here. So these animals in this part of the graph are really depleted in nitrogen, and that's because they're eating things like clover and also tamarind, both of which are nitrogen fixers, and so have very little nitrogen in their um, external plant parts. Um, Everywhere. Yeah, there's a story about clover and to do that everyone learns at school in the UK where medieval peasants used to plant clover as part of a crop rotation and that's because it returns goodness back into the soil and that's what you're seeing there. But as a result, you're seeing less of that nitrogen in the external plant parts. So this is a modern macaque dietary summary. We saw really clear variation by latitude. We see seasonal signals, which are picked up in the seasonal supplementation using C4 resources. We see much more dietary variability in higher latitude macaques. And again, this is related to this C4 supplementation. I, just, I didn't really go into that in very great detail, but you do see on these graphs, for example, more variability along this axis, which isn't to do with the number of individuals sampled. It's because there's a, there's a statistically significant difference in these groups there. 
and that's because they're existing in more marginal habitats. And then we've also got low nitrogen ratios linked to legume consumption. And this again is another seasonal thing. So what about fossils then? So I mentioned that Italy was a refugial area for macaques. Um, and you, we have a really, really, really good fossil record from, from Italy and also from Sardinia here. And there are two different species um, in Italy and Sardinia. Uh, we've got Sardinian macaque, Macaca maiori, and we've got Macaca sylvanus in Italy proper. Um, these two are relatively closely related but have various morphological differences that make us think that they're good species. So one obvious question here was, do we get a species specific difference. So the Maori, was that existing or something different to Sylvanus? And do we see across the time period, because these are sampled across two million years or so, do we see changes, differences in diet according to Italy versus Sardinia, but also in Italy over time? Um, we were able to use our hair data as a comparative sample here because Carolyn Chenery did this work and found that we were able to calculate um, so isotope fractionation in, from bone collagen and bone appetite, and this is what you're going to be finding in teeth, um, and use hair still as a comparative sample. That's a bit of a techie thing um, you don't need to worry about particularly. And these are the data. So these are the data from our fossils as well as from modern macaque control groups <coughs> and comparators. And what we, if we have a look at this graph first, to answer the first question, we don't see any statistically significant difference between Macaca maiori on Sardinia and Macaca sylvanus. So even though they seem to be good morphological species, they weren't doing anything different in terms of their exploitation of diets. Um, and we don't see any change over time, um, particularly in these groups either. What we do see is we see a statistically significant difference between the modern and the fossil primates. Now, we think, oh, that's interesting. Is that because they have a different diet in the Pleistocene? Probably not, because in fact, when you build in the differences in atmospheric carbon into these data, what you are seeing is a shift that's happened in Moderns, because you see they're further down this carbon axis, so we've got carbon on this, the y-axis here. They're further down here because of the decrease in atmospheric carbon. So that accounts for that. So when you unpack these data, what you see is the variation, the variability within these different groups. And here we have um, Macaca sylvanus here, and that's from Gibraltar actually. We've got Macaca fascicularis from Southeast Asia, and we've got Macaca mulatta, which are the data I've just shown you. If you have a look at the general patterns of variability in some of these, this is a single population, a single troop on Gibraltar. Um, you have about as much variation as you do in a group from, for example, all the Macaca maiori early Pleistocene in Sardinia that are probably sampled over quite a wide time period. What this tells us is that variability and the ability to eat very varied diets is highly conserved in the macaques. This is an ancestral trait that we've seen in macaques throughout all time, probably. Of course, we haven't got every single fossil macaque species on here, but using Macaca sylvanus as the best example of that, we see a very similar pattern, a very big variation, not only over time and between different places, but also within groups. And that's interesting because this 
This speaks to this idea that you can probably exploit um, environments much better if you're Eurotopic, which links into thinking about humans. So let's think about the cats versus humans for a moment or two. So we have variations by latitude and environment in both groups, which links to this idea of, of Eurotopia. So flexibility, lack of specialisation, other than the specialisation that you have towards eating you know, plant foods. Um, in the cats, we've got this really strongly conserved pattern of dietary variation and variability. We don't know whether that's true for hominins, interestingly. It seems like it's probably the case for later Pleistocene hominins, but if we have a look at, at early hominins, so Pliocene hominins such as Australopithecus afarensis, so the Lucy species, for example, they seem to have much more fixed diets that... Manage, they managed to use those fixed diets to ride out significant environmental change. So that's quite interesting. So there may have been a switch with Homo into having much more eutopic style of exploiting environments. And this would link in to lots of ideas about how Homo actually managed to get out of the tropics and out into all the different biomes that we see today. What we do see, though, is responses to seasonal fluctuations in both taxa. Um, but interestingly, in macaques, we don't see a link between latitude and fornivory. So this is somewhere where humans and macaques seem to be doing something different. So humans break away from this primate niche by exploiting many more faunal resources than we see in macaques. And this could also be argued as well for dietary quality, because we don't see macaques having a much better quality diet in certain places. We just see them eating different things. So humans are breaking away from the, the primate mould at this point. And this is also evident in the way that humans exploit plants. So for example, moving their niche so that they, they, they exploit monocots as well as dicots and you see very few primates exploit monocot foods and again this is something that that Stanley talked about quite extensively in there and also extensive food processing so humans are doing something very different by the time we get into the Pleistocene compared to macaques and this of course links and this is my final slide more or less this links into us thinking about well just do we, by having an idea about where human ca humans came from in terms of their diet evolutionarily, does this give us any clues about how we should deal with public health issues related to obesity today? So, lovely quote, humans can eat almost everything, but it doesn't mean that they should. This, I use this in my undergraduate lectures because this is the most disgusting plate of food I think I've ever seen. I've no idea, there's, there's sprinkles on there, there's chips... There's some sort of highly processed red cabbage, a sort of sausage battered sauce. I mean, this is, this is horrible, isn't it? It doesn't look like anything we really associate with food, but in fact, this is a reality of an industrial, industrial highly processed diet. And we've got this real paradox at the moment. So we've got a massive choice. So if you go into a supermarket, this is what you face with huge amounts of choice. But in fact, when you look at what the choice you have, the choice isn't really you know, related to micronutrients. Micronutrient density and micronutrient variation is actually quite low, but in very energy-dense food. And this is quite different from the type of plant-based diet that we would have evolved with. Um, I wrote a paper for the Turkish Medical Journal last year. I was asked to, to provide something that would be a bit of a 
a link between human evolution and something that Turkish doctors could uh, perhaps you know, try and use in their practice a bit more. So I started to look into the Turkish diet in a bit of detail, and they've got a really you know, post-agricultural diet, of course, but very you know, based on lots of dietary diversity, lots of plant foods. And so one of the things I argued, which is something I've been arguing for quite a long time, is that you don't really need to invoke the Stone Age diet to, to talk about healthy food and human, the evolution of human dietary behaviour. You just need to think about traditional diets, even if they're post um, agricultural and emphasise dietary diversity, variability, a plant-based, less processed diet. And if you have a look at the types of traditional diets that you see across the world, yes, some are very dominated by monocultures and this, that and the other, but the energy density is less, the highly industrialised processed food that we're exposed to all the time is much less. And this may be one of the things that we need to think about very seriously in terms of obesity, and I'm not saying anything new to this audience at all, but we do need to think about the, the impact of industrialised diets when we think about obesity. And this, of course, links back to our primate heritage, where most primates will eat a variable diet um, across the year that changes seasonally and is also really based on plant resources, um, with indeed in humans some shifts towards increased processing to increase digestibility, but nowhere near as far as the ultra-processing that we've got to um, in modern industrialised countries. So, with that, I'll say thanks again for the invitation. I thank my collaborators, um, and also Rhiannon Stevens, Jason Dunn and Jane Evans, who contributed to parts of this work. And, and a lot of the isotope work here was funded by NERC, so we're very grateful to them. So, thank you.